I just read this past week where Joseph Fletcher of Situational Ethics uh, fame is now suggesting since we uh, believe that fetuses are subhuman and can be aborted, there's no reasonable, uh, there's no logical reason why we could not also take other subhuman life, that is the senile, the uh, mentally retarded, the infirm, the aged, and what he advocates is uh, active euthanasia. And just this past week, Francis Crick, who is a scientist and uh, uh, Nobel, Nobel uh, laureate, has proposed that uh, 80 be a compulsory age for uh, taking life. So uh, <laughs> some of you are getting a little close. <laughs> so we need... We need to be making our presence felt. <laughs> but it really is not a laughing matter. It's Malcolm Muggeridge uh, comments on what he calls the slippery slope between abortion and active euthanasia. And we're already there. People are already advocating mercy killings of the uh, infirmed and the elderly. It's a, it's a very serious matter. Now, let's uh, go back to the book of Acts. It's been three weeks since we last studied this book, and so you probably have all forgotten what, uh, what we were talking about. Three weeks ago, Brian taught on Acts uh, 21, and just to refresh your memory a bit, Luke uh, tells us in that chapter that Paul went into the temple with four of his Jewish friends. They had taken a Nazarite vow from which they needed to be purified. And this vow now having run its course, they uh, went into the temple to, uh, to uh, offer the prescribed sacrifices, and, and Paul went along. Not because he was lapsing into legalism, as many people believe, but I, I think because the, uh, the church leadership in Jerusalem advocated it as a way of dispelling some of the rumors that were afoot, that Paul had turned his back on his Jewish background, his culture, and uh, the law. Uh, we don't know for sure if Paul was wrong in taking this action. Luke tends to not make many judgments. He just tells it like it is. But uh, for myself, I don't think Paul was wrong. Again, he was trying to meet the objections that had arisen over what seemed to be uh, his abandonment of his uh, Jewish uh, background, his culture. But when he went into the temple, he did uh, create problems both for himself and for the church in Jerusalem. I'll begin reading uh, from chapter 21, verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, that is, the days uh, for purification, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul in the temple. These were not Palestinian Jews. They were Asian Jews gathered in Jerusalem for the feast of the, of the Pentecost. And uh, they knew Paul by sight. They, they probably had come from Ephesus, a city where Paul had lived for three and a half years. They also knew Trophimus, who's uh, designated in this passage in Ephesian, and recognized them. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized them, shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law in this, in this place. That was patently untrue. It was a trumped-up charge. simply wasn't so. But uh, it was gained to... Uh, get a hearing. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. That wasn't true either. 
uh, it was against the law, against Jewish law, to take a Gentile into the court of the Israelites. The, uh, the temple was divided into various uh, precincts. There was one court for Gentiles and one court for Israelites who were not priests or Levites. And there was a gate in between these two, uh, two courts with a brass plaque on the wall that prohibited entrance unless you were a Jew. The uh, Jewish historian Josephus uh, tells us that it was written in Greek and Latin. And, and just recently, within the last few years, they actually un uncovered one of these plaques, a brass plaque that makes it a capital offense for a Gentile to intrude into the inner uh, precincts of the temple. They thought, because they'd seen Paul and Trophimus walking together on the streets of Jerusalem, that Paul had taken this uh, Greek or Gentile into the temple, and they were outraged. And we're told in verse 30, uh, verse 30, the whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul in, in the temple, they dragged him out, and immediately the gates were shut, that is, the gates into the inner sanctum either because they didn't want to desecrate the temple by killing Paul there, or because they didn't want Paul to run into the temple proper and grasp the horns of the altar, which is one way that he could have protected himself. Luke tells us that they tried to kill him, knocked him to the ground, uh, tried to batter him uh, to death. And the uh, news... Um, reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He had once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. That's what saved his life. Another, another example of Roman justice uh, preserving Paul's life that had happened more than, more than once before. Just to the northwest of the, of the temple area, there was a large uh, fortress called the Fortress of Antonia in which the Roman soldiers were housed. And during festival periods like this, they had as many as a thousand soldiers there to keep, keep peace. They knew the tendency of, of the Jews to, uh, to riot and, and to civil disorder, and so they were there to keep things uh, calm. And when they uh, heard this riot in the temple, they tumbled down the stairs, and evidently there must have been several hundred of them because he describes several centurions and their soldiers coming down the steps to rescue Paul. And uh, they arrested Paul, according to verse 33, probably knew uh, nothing else to do in order to protect him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, chained him to two Roman soldiers, one on each side. Then asked him who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get the truth, get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. It reminds me of those uh, bowl games when people are shouting so loud that the quarterback can't hear. And uh, the centurion, the, the commander here, the Kiliarch, was unable to understand Paul or the crowd. And so he took him into the barracks where he could, uh, he could uh, talk to him privately. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. They put him on their shoulders and held him overhead and thus kept him from the crowd. But the, the crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. The uh, Greek phrase, iriaton, here is the same word that was used by the same crowd 
uh, with reference to Jesus in almost the same spot 30 years uh, ago. Same word, away with him. This man's unworthy to live. Riots are really frightening things. When I was working with students, I saw a number of of riots occur on the campuses in, in the Bay Area. People in mass are capable of doing things that they would never do as individuals. They're frightening, mindless, unreasonable, awesome things. And this is the sort of situation Paul found himself in. No one could protect him. Luke, who evidently is an eyewitness of this, of this riot, was powerless to help him. But uh, the Roman soldiers delivered him. And according to verse 37, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? And the commander, for the first time, heard him and picked up Paul's cultured, uh, educated uh, Greek uh, accent. He realized that he had mistakenly identified him as someone else. Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the desert some time ago? Uh, we know from a Jewish historian who this uh, terrorist was. He was the head of, a, of a, a group of bandits who were literally terrorists. They were pro-Israeli uh, uh, assassins. They would slip into a crowd that carried little daggers up their sleeves that were called Sakari. Like they, that's how they gained their, gained their name. That's, that's the term that, that Luke uses here, the Sakari. And they would take these little daggers out stab people in crowds, and uh, their attempt was to terrorize. The purpose of terrorism is to terrorize, as Marx put it, and that, that was their purpose. And the Roman soldiers had eventually decided they had to put an end to, it, to, to this, and uh, they massacred almost all of its followers, but the leader himself escaped into the desert. Apparently, the commander felt that Paul was this Egyptian, and he'd come back, and the crowd had, uh, had turned on him. But now he realizes that this is not the case. Paul answered in verse 39, I'm a Jew. From Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Let me speak to the people. <clears throat> it's quite audacious, really, a very courageous act on Paul's part to turn and speak to the people who moments before were trying to tear him limb from limb. I'm sure he looked uh, the worst for wear, battered and and uh, bloodied. But now he speaks uh, to the crowd on his own defense. Having received the commander's permission, verse 40, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Aramaic was the national language of Israel. Uh, no one... Hardly anyone spoke Hebrew at that time. Aramaic was the language that they learned when they were in exile. They all forgot the Hebrew language. And when they came back, they were speaking the language of the Babylonians and the Persians, which was Aramaic. And so when Paul began to speak to them in their native tongue, they immediately quieted down. And what follows is the story of, of Paul's call and conver his conversion and call can be divided into three uh, parts. The first five verses look back on his heritage, his background, his upbringing as a Jew. The second section from 6 through 16 describes his uh, remarkable conversion. And verses 17 through 21, his commission, his call. Let's look first at uh, what he says of his background. 
verse 2. Then Paul said, I myself am a Jew. So he identifies with them at the outset. And it's very clear as you read through this, uh, through his description of his former life, that what he's trying to do is to identify closely with the Jewish people. He says, I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Not a native of Jerusalem, raised in Tarsus, which was a Roman or Greek city, but brought up here in Jerusalem. Nothing like the word of a native to have uh, authority. I still find that uh, native Idahoans uh, have much more respect than those of us that are newcomers here to the state. That's what Paul is saying. Though I was born outside of Jerusalem, I consider this to be my, my hometown, raised here. Brought up, as a matter of fact, under Gamaliel, by whom I was thoroughly trained in the law of, of our fathers. Gamaliel was considered to be one of the uh, great rabbis in Israel's history. And he chose only the, the most brilliant, most promising young scholars to be his students. And so to, be, to have studied under Gamaliel was, was, was an unusual thing, and it gave a person an unusual prestige. Furthermore, he says, I'm just as zealous as you are for God. I'm just as zealous for God as any of you today. In other words, you're trying to kill me because I'm a Christian. But there was a time when I, when I was just as zealous. I was a zealot for the cause of God. I tried to kill Christians. I thought that what they were saying was an assault upon my, my Jewishness. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. High priest and the uh, members of the Sanhedrin were apparently in the crowd. And he calls their attention to the fact that they were there when Paul was sent on this mission to Damascus. And they could attest to his, to, to his, his ferocious uh, zeal and persecution of the church. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. After the stoning of Stephen, a number of Christians fled Jerusalem to Syria. Paul gained letters of, uh, of uh, extradition from the high priest and from the Sanhedrin to bring them back from Damascus in order to put them to death. But he says, About noon, as I drew near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground. And heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul didn't have any idea who was addressing him. Who, who are you, sir? He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. He replied, my companions saw the light, but they did not understand. Uh, the, he replied, my companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? He asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go to Damascus. There you will, you will be told all that you have been assigned to do be revealed to you at that point what my will is for you. Back in Acts, uh, we're told that the Lord said to him, you've been kicking against the goad. The Lord had been goading Paul for a long period of time as a result of the witness of the Christians toward the truth, toward believing in Jesus. And Paul had been kicking and resisting and fighting like... Like C.S. Lewis, he was dragged into the kingdom, kicking and screaming. It wasn't his, wasn't his intention to be a Christian. He didn't like Christians. He didn't want to be around them. Didn't think they were right. He was convinced they were wrong. 
but uh, he was he was arrested literally he was stopped in his journey to Jerusalem and, and he saw the Lord face to face and he was given his unusual commission at this point he made his way up to Damascus and he tells us in verse 12 that a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. Again, he wants to point out that this man Ananias was, was a Jew who would have identified with these Jews in Jerusalem. He was known and respected by the Jews there, an observer of the law. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said... The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will. That was the, the desire of every pious Jew in the Old Testament, to know God's will. And then secondly, to see the righteous one. That phrase, the righteous one, is a messianic title used in the Old Testament of the one who was to come. He doesn't say Jesus. That would have enraged the crowd at this point. He uses a term they would all be familiar with, a more neutral term, the Messiah. He's chosen you to see the righteous one and furthermore to hear his words. That was the desire of every godly Jew to see Messiah and, and to sit at his feet and be taught by him. If you've seen the movie or the play Fiddler on the Roof, then you, you know something of that yearning and desire the Jews have to, to see Messiah. Um, Bruce Walkie told me that he has a friend in Jerusalem who's a Hasidic Jew who every day gets up and dresses in his very best. He presses his pants and his coat, and he puts on his, his uh, a clean white shirt, and he walks the streets of Jerusalem because he thinks, perhaps today I will see my Messiah, and he will, as, as, as Bruce put it, he will speak his words to me. And that's the desire. You see, that, that's, that was the desire of every pious Jew. And, and Paul says, I, I, I've seen him. I've heard his words. I know his will. And we know the rest of the story. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try to uh, describe it in detail because we, uh, we talked about his conversion when we studied Acts 9. But we know that he went off into the Arabian desert for about three years and then he came back to Damascus thinking that he was God's instrument to reach the Jews. And he began to preach in the synagogues and they wouldn't accept him. He created riot after riot, and the Christians had to get him out of town, so they put him in a fish basket, and they led him over the side of the wall, and he ran for his life through the, through the darkness, and he went down to Jerusalem, and he thought, well, I was just in the wrong place. In Jerusalem, they'll accept me because of my training, my education under Gamaliel, the fact that I was a member of the Sanhedrin. I have contacts here. I have the mind for working with these, these brilliant... Uh, uh, scholarly rabbis in, in Jerusalem. And, and he had the same reaction there. Created so much trouble for the church, the Christians decided they had to get him out of town, so they sent him off to Tarsus. He was glad to be rid of him. But in the midst of all of this discouragement, when he was in Jerusalem and, and, and he was experiencing this rejection, he went into the temple to pray and tells us what, what occurred on that occasion. Verse 17, When I returned to Jerusalem, that was three years after his conversion, and I was praying at the temple. I, I fell into a trance. And I saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. And Paul argued with the Lord. He didn't want to leave Jerusalem. Lord, I, 
I replied, These men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was, was shed, I stood there giving my approval, guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. He was going to go on and make his case even stronger for staying in Jerusalem. And the Lord interrupted him and said, Go, I'll send you far away. Paul said, I don't want to go to the Gentiles. They don't eat like I eat. They don't think like I think. They don't dress like I do. They don't smell like I do. I want to stay here in Jerusalem. That's what I've been prepared for all of my life. I can, I can see that. My training, my education, my mind, it all equips me for this task. And God said, I don't want you in Jerusalem. I want you to go far away. And that was the beginning of a, of a very hard life for Paul. Gave up the comfort of his homeland to go far away to work with people that he really did not care for. Didn't like Gentiles. Didn't want to go. Well, that's about as far as he got in his speech because the moment he, he mentioned the word Gentiles, the place came unglued. Luke tells us in verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. And as they were shouting and, and shaking off their cloaks, uh, this symbolic uh, thing that Jews do to indicate they're shaking dust off of their cloak is, is a way of, of rejecting someone. And flinging dust into the air is a good thing they couldn't get their hands on, on stones out in the the courtroom, courtyard. The commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. The commander couldn't speak Aramaic. didn't understand a word of what Paul had said to the crowd. So he thought, well, we'll, we'll take this. We can't get any truth out of this fellow, so I'll take him into the barracks and we'll beat the truth out of him. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to, to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? The man dropped his flog like a hot poker. It was illegal to subject a Roman citizen to this sort of indignity. They could be beaten with rods, but, but not scourged. And the centurion, who was an underling, was sort of a master sergeant, Realized he was in big trouble if he laid laid a hand on this man. It was his it was his career, if not his life. And he dropped that thing and he ran up the stairs to his commander's office. And he said, What in the world are you doing? Don't you realize this man's a Roman citizen? Commander dropped everything, ran down the stairs, came to Paul and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes, I am. And the commander said, well, I, I had to pay a, a big price for my citizenship. Probably looked at Paul, bedraggled and battered, and, and thought, you know, how could this man come up with that, uh, that fast sum? They must be selling citizenships at a much uh, cheaper rate these days. And Paul says very quietly, I was born a citizen. The man was just thunderstruck because that meant that uh, his father was a citizen. He was a member of aristocracy. He probably was one of the courageous soldiers in Cilicia that had been given citizenship by Pompey, the Roman soldier, some years ago. And these men were the elite 
of Tarsus, the aristocracy, and he realized what he had on his hands. He'd made a grave mistake. His career, his life was on the line. And I'm sure at that point he said, Mr. Paul, sir, <laughs> what can we do for you? Would you like some breakfast? So dusting him off, takes him upstairs to his quarters and it's very interesting. You read on through the rest of the book of Acts and you see this sort of deference and the polite way they handle Paul. Things that are, things really change from this point on. <clears throat> I read this story and I think, so what? It's an interesting story. Uh, very colorful eyewitness account. Very interesting. But, but what's the significance? I, we have to go back, I think, to this description of Paul's uh, conversion and his and his call. It's clearly what Paul wants to under, or what Luke wants to underscore. And w- what I see in, in Paul's description of his early life and his call, his conversion, and ultimately his call, is that that God's choices are often very, very hard. And we're often called to act contrary to our will. As a matter of fact, I don't think God is primarily concerned about us getting our will at all. Ananias made it very clear to Paul when he appeared, uh, when he first saw Ananias in Damascus. And he said, God has revealed his will. It was never Paul's will to go to the Gentiles. That wasn't where he wanted to be. It was a hard choice that he had to make, but that was God's Hard choice that was imposed upon him. And it just strikes me that so often that's the case. Sometimes with the, with the saintliest of God's people, they're, they're called to heat and insects and danger and loneliness and isolation and hunger and imprisonment and scaffolds and crosses. That seems to be the name of the game. And for those of us who are just uh, mere Christians... Uh, all sorts of terrifying things seem to happen to us. It's, it's as though God doesn't really care how hard things are. He does. He does. He cares. But it seems that he has some higher priority. And then sometimes those higher priorities mean that life becomes very hard and very difficulty, very difficult, and it's not to our liking. I've been reading M. Scott Peck's book, the road less traveled. Peck is a psychiatrist who was not a Christian when he wrote the book. He later became a Christian, but he's a he's a very uh, uh, he's a very good student of human nature. And the first statement in his book is that life is difficult. And he says once you learn that fact, life becomes less difficult. But if you don't realize that, life becomes even more difficult. Life is hard. It's very hard. And sometimes these choices which are imposed upon us by God make, make life even more difficult. And we wonder if God really does care. It calls us sometimes to a life of loneliness and, and circumstances where the load seems unlimited. And we wonder, what is God doing? Why is he making things so hard? And we don't particularly like it. Uh, I have a hero. Carolyn always teases me because this man is my hero, but uh, <clears throat> he is. Uh, I'd probably idolize him, except I know better. And uh, uh, I, I happened a few weeks ago to meet some people who uh, who know him quite well. 
So I asked them, one of the questions that has always been in my mind about this, this individual, I've only met him once, I just shook hands with him, so I don't know him well at all. Uh, he's, he's 61 years old, and he's, he's single. He's been a bachelor all of his life. So I, I asked one of these men, why has uh, this individual chosen to be single? Has he, as, as Jesus put it, made himself, uh, metaphorically, a eunuch? For the sake of the kingdom of God, has he chosen to remain single? And uh, Tom Cooper, uh, who was one of these men, said to me, No, he said, it's really interesting. I asked him the same question. And he said, You know, Tom, I, I have had opportunities to get married four or five times. I've come very close. He's apparently been engaged a few times in his life. But things just didn't seem to work out. He said, I've never felt that I was called to a life of celibacy. It's just worked out that way. He said, I'm very lonely. I wouldn't advise it for anyone, but it's God's choice for me. Now, that's the sort of thing that I'm talking about. God may well ask us to accept that sort of choice. And we don't have to like it. Nobody says we have to like it. We can even argue with God. Paul did. Our Lord did. In the garden, he didn't want to face the cross. He said, if there's any other option, I'll take that one. And the father said, no, that's, that's the choice. And so the Lord said, basically what Paul had to say, not my will, but yours be done. I thought, too, of Holly Newman while I was preparing this, uh, this sermon. Holly doesn't like bugs, and she doesn't like heat, and she doesn't like dirt, and she got all of these things in Singapore. And she doesn't like it. She still doesn't like it. But she went. And I'm sure she argues with God every day. I would. But she went. My friend Bob Smith has a plaque in his office that reads, Do it anyway. And I've often thought, that's, that's the basic approach to the Christian life. God's choices are hard. We don't always like them, but we need to do it anyway. That's what discipleship means. That's what uh, Peck calls the road less traveled. That, that road of discipline. Uh, Carolyn asked me this last week what I was going to speak on, and I told her, just briefly ran over the things that I've shared with you this morning, and in her typical way, she said, when I said, God makes hard choices for her, she said, why? And uh, I had to think for a minute. <clears throat> the first thing that came to mind was... Uh, Lucy, I think it was Lucy's statement in the Narnian Tales when asked why Aslan sometimes makes a, causes us to make causes the children to make such hard choices. Her comment was because he's the king. That's why. It occurs to me that is one reason God is sovereign. He's the ruler of the universe. That seems to be the point that Job makes. Job's suffering could only be explained on that basis that God is wise and. He says, in effect, to Job, can, can you run the world right? Can you do any better job? Who has the wisdom to do all of these things? To control the universe? To create life? And Job finally concludes, yeah, God's the only one who can do these things. I have to let God be God. That's it. I can't understand my suffering. He didn't see what was going on in heaven. He just simply rested in the fact that God had the right to be God. Remember the story that Jesus told about... The man who needed laborers to work in the field, and he 
he went out uh, very early in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, and hired some people out of the marketplace. Uh, there was more work to be done, so he went back at, at the uh, ninth hour, or third hour rather, nine o'clock in the morning, and then at twelve, and then the middle of the afternoon, and finally the eleventh hour, just an hour before quitting time. And they came to get their uh, their pay. And when they walked up to the paymaster's desk, they discovered that everyone got the same reward. And those that, uh, that had worked all day were angry. They argued with the landowner. And they said, we've borne the heat of the day. That isn't right. And the landowner says, don't I have the right to do as I please with what belongs to me? And that's really where we have to rest it. Doesn't God have the right to order our lives? To put us through whatever he has to put us through? But uh, there's another reason, I think, why, why life is hard. Or another perspective, perhaps, on the hardness of, of life. It's not simply left there that God imposes these choices upon us arbitrarily. It's because he has something more in stake for us, in, in store for us. Uh, as Paul puts it, this uh, light, momentary affliction is working for us an exceeding weight of glory. There's some correspondence between the suffering that we endure here and the weight of glory that we receive. I don't thoroughly understand that, except I know that we're not creatures of time. We're creatures of eternity. We don't live for this day and age. We live for eternity and for the Lord's well done and the reward that comes then. Uh, I read last week Michael Mugridge's book, Christ in the Media, and he, he contrasts in that book the uh, thinking of Karl Marx and uh, John Milton. Marx, as you know, was, a, was an atheist, a materialist. He, he believed that someday the, the, the working classes would be victorious and we'd all live happily ever after. On the other hand, Milton was a Christian, a Puritan. And as uh, Muggeridge put it, he realized he was a pilgrim moving through life, looking for that distant shore from which someday the trumpets would, uh, there'd be a trumpet blast calling him over there. And consequently, he was able to go through prison experiences. Milton spent half his life in one prison after another because he wasn't living for the here and now, but for then. And he saw that this light momentary affliction is working for us an exceeding weight of glory. And then the third and final reason why I think these choices that God makes for us are often so hard is because it's the yearning of his heart that all of us experience salvation, ourselves and the world. Uh, if, if we did not have it hard in this life, we would get very attached to it. We really would. Uh, it's easy for us to put our roots down into things as they are here, to grasp things tightly. As Corey Ten Boom puts it, we have a tendency to, to grasp things tightly in our hands, and sometimes God has to pry our fingers off of these things. So we'll trust Him. Uh, Pascal said, The preoccupation of life is to seek God. That's the purpose of it all. And everything else, he said, is a distraction. Everything. And he's right. He's right. The pursuit of power and, and wealth and personal happiness and health 
Those are all distractions. There, there may not be anything wrong with them in, in and of themselves, but they have a tendency to come in between us and our search for God and our hunger for Him. And to, and to, to, to make us become preoccupied with things instead of the eternal worth of, of knowing God. And so for our own sake, for our own salvation, we may have to experience hardship. But, but beyond that, there's the salvation of the world. And as Paul puts it, the means to the end of their salvation is very often, often the suffering of his people. Paul says in 2 Timothy to his young friend Timothy, Suffer hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And that's in the context of discipling others. He, he seems to imply that, that you cannot fulfill that mandate to disciple others unless, unless there's some suffering involved. Because he says, I have suffered for the sake of the elect. There are people there that God wants to redeem and, and call in. And, and Paul was the instrument for that redemption. And he had to leave home and family and comfort. And he had to walk through a dangerous country. He was exposed to all sorts of, uh, of difficult circumstances. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. And ultimately, he, he gave up his life. But he says, I do it all for the sake of those that are to be redeemed. So God may very well send you to Singapore or to Alexandria or to some other place on the face of the earth where we do not have the creature comforts that, that we have here. But if he does... You'll be satisfied. He'll satisfy you with, with himself. As Jesus put it to the woman at the well, my food is to do the will of him that, that sent me. And when we do his will, that's, that's when we're satisfied. I listened just this last week again to Johnny Erickson's tape in this one line. Struck me, O Lord, dear Lord, great author of the play, may I in wisdom play the only part I need to play. That's the part you wrote for me. And I don't know what part God is going to write for you or for me. It may be a very difficult part to play, but that's the role that we're called upon to play. And it's only in submitting to His will that we'll find the satisfaction and, and the peace that we're looking for. There's a vast difference, I hope you understand, between joy and happiness. One endures and and one does not. Joy, that enduring quality, comes from, from doing His will. Jesus once told a story of uh, two sons. To one, the father said, go, and, and the son said, I'll go, and, but he didn't go. And then uh, he spoke to his second son, and he said, go, and the son said, I'm not going. But he went. I, uh, I find myself frequently in the place of that second son. Sometimes I, I say I'll go and, and I don't go. But more often than not, I find myself arguing and fighting and discussing the thing with the Lord. I really don't want to go, but, but I finally go. And I, I don't think God cares particularly that we argue with Him. What He looks for is the obedience of our spirit. Are we willing to submit ourselves to His will, whatever it costs? That's what delights Him. And in that obedience, we find our own satisfaction and rest. Let's pray. Father, it's, uh, 
life is difficult and hard at times, and those choices that are imposed upon us sometimes uh, are, are very hard. But we thank you that these choices come not out of the hardness of your heart. You love us, and you care about us, and you hurt when we hurt. But you know what's best. And, Lord, we know that you understand our, our unwillingness at times to go and our inclination to want personal comfort and ease and to just settle down and not be bothered, <clears throat> not have our privacy invaded, and not have to change locations or rethink our uh, the truth that we have or be exposed to people that we who are not our kind. But that's the sort of thing that you called us to do. And we want to be willing to go. We thank you that you give us the grace to obey. And having obeyed, we have the satisfaction and the peace that comes from that obedience. We thank you. We ask that you would strengthen us now in the choices that we have to make this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.